20 years ago, thereabouts, I was pastoring a church in a place called McPherson, Kansas. Uh, I used to say that uh, McPherson was a place that was in, in the middle of everything and close to nowhere. Um, I was 29 years old or young when I was called to serve as their lead pastor. Uh, the church at the time when I arrived uh, averaged about 200 people on a weekend but grew to nearly 1,000 over uh, 10 years of ministry. The community's population was only 14,000, so that's, that's pretty remarkable growth by any standard. We saw uh, hundreds of people give their lives to Christ and be baptized. Um, praise God, God did that. God did that. But soon after celebrating my 10th anniversary at the church, uh, a recently hired uh, pastor on our staff who uh, we were struggling with in a variety of ways rallied a group of people. And we found ourselves in a situation that eventually led to about 150 people, people that uh, a number I had prayed with to accept Christ, people um, that I had married and dedicated their children and sat by their side in the hospital and shared a meal with, uh, they left the church and they started their own. It was messy, uh, gut-wrenchingly so, messy. It wasn't the first time, uh, nor was it the last, that I would experience the highs and the lows of church, the miraculous and messy aspects of what it means to live together, dwell together as a church. And I know many of you have experienced that too. I know many of you have had those kinds of experiences in your time in a church. Only the miraculous here at Fellowship, but other places. Maybe it's the plus of having served a number of places. I, I can share stories from other places. And, and uh, when Monty leaves here, if he ever leaves here, he probably won't leave here. But if he left here, he'd be talking about you. <laughs> Only the miraculous again. But, but perfect churches are a myth. They're a myth, right? As the joke goes, if you find a, a perfect church, please do not join it or you'll mess it up, all right? The, the very first time in the Bible that the word church is used is in the second half of today's text. And it's used in the same context of the very first recorded sin in the church. I'm not saying that it hadn't sinned up to then, that people hadn't, but it's the first recording of each of these words. The miraculous and the messy. No perfect churches, but there are great churches. Great churches that seek to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission to love God and to make disciples. Um, Monty came to my office and showed me um, uh, his blog for the newsletter this week, and, and I had my outline open on my laptop, and it was like a, a divine alignment or misalignment, <laughs> uh, depending on your perspective. I, I agree if, if you have. Uh, and if you haven't, uh, you should uh, take a look at that, uh, that blog. Uh, but the point kind of being that, that the word great, like a number of words, is greatly overused. But it's used in our text, and I'm going to use it on the outline. Um, and I use it, though, as he described, with the full weight of its meaning as something extraordinary and something exceptional remarkable and superior in character and effectiveness. God does that. God does that by his spirit in his church. 
Let's, uh, let's look at one snapshot of what a great church looks like in Acts chapter 4. If you'll turn with me or turn uh, your attention to the screen, Acts 4, and we'll read verses 32 to 35. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Sounds like a great church, doesn't it? Sounds like a great church. Really, everything that we have read about the church, that we have uncovered about the church in, uh, up to this point in our study through the book of Acts is, is, is pretty miraculous. Um, these verses, in fact, sound like a, a continuation of description that we're given uh, from several weeks back in Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. The church is larger now. And so uh, they've gone outward with the mission. They've expanded the footprint of the gospel, but they're still going strong. Even after some trials, even after some persecution, some hardship, they're, they're still uh, doing a great job of being and doing church. Here's a list, I think, of things that we can pull from this first church, from this passage that ought to be marks for uh, every church to aspire to. And that's really a part of as we walk through Acts, we get to see some things that, that we as a church can aspire to. A great church is characterized by, first, great unity. Great unity from verse 32. It's a common theme in Acts. It's really a common theme throughout the, the New Testament. Anytime it's, we're talking about the church or concerns about the church, uh, the, in the record of the early church, the gospel unites us in Christ. One heart, it says, one soul, and everything in common. When, when it says that uh, they were one, one uh, heart and soul, really those are two different words. He's not simply compounding them. But it means that they were one in Christ. They shared the life of Jesus First is a fact of their existence uh, in that heart issue, but, th but they also didn't just experience that as, an exist as, as a fact of their existence, but also as a part of their experience. Um, it's unity and community. It's belonging to one another, and it's alignment in thought and emotion and will. The, the connected life is a way of life. It's who we are. It's who we are, and it's how we live. It's family. A great unity and great community is really a shift in uh, a natural bent towards uh, selfishness. It, it requires, it means that we put the needs of others uh, before ourselves. And so they now, they now regarded uh, people as more important than things. They recognized God's ownership of everything. It all belonged to God and, um, and his people. Having all things in common. This, this section of scripture has, um, has been uh, used um, to somehow communicate a form of communism. And so it doesn't. Um, <laughs> um, uh, communism is not koinonia. Communism says what's yours 
is mine, I'll take it. Okay? Uh, Koinonia says, what's yours is mine, I'll share it. More than any society um, in history, I think uh, ours is one that might be uh, uh, recognized as one of acquiring and accumulating. And, and I think every time, I think about that every time I drive by one of those uh, uh, storage uh, businesses, I've, I don't know if I've ever lived anywhere that had more <laughs> storage, self-storage. Uh, how many of you own one? It must be half of you. Um, I mean, car washes and storage units. There's just like a lot of them around here. And um, I don't know what that says, but we have a lot of stuff. Somehow it says we have a lot of stuff and stuff that we can't even reach and, and stuff that we don't use, at least on any kind of regular basis. And I want to acknowledge I'm not completely innocent. I don't have anything in a storage unit, but I, I've got clothes in my closets that I haven't worn in years. And, uh, and I've got a few kitchen gadgets. I, I, I like kitchen gadgets. I like, I like, you know, new things like that. And, and, and I use them, you know, a couple times. And, um, <laughs> and then they end up in a box, right? Uh, great unity is rooted in this biblical principle that, um, that everything belongs to God. It all belongs to God. And, and therefore, it is available to anyone who needs it. So, so if you need an Instapot, I, I, I got one for you, okay? Um, I know, very generous and sacrificial. Um, a second characteristic of a great church that we see here is great power. Great power, first part of verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This is both a result uh, and the root of the attitude that we see in the, in the previous verse. Notice again that the central place of, of the message of the resurrection of Jesus that it held for uh, these early Christians. They preach a resurrected Jesus all the time, everywhere, to anyone. It's in Acts 2. It's in Acts 3. It's in Acts 4. We'll see it in Acts 5. And it just keeps going on through the early church as it was uh, planted and as it flourished. A great church preaches the resurrection of Jesus Christ to itself, to each other, and to the world. Amen? Amen. And I know that at least is in, in, in part, maybe large part, uh, why you've landed and why you stay here at Fellowship. Uh, preaching the resurrection of Christ all the time, everywhere, to anyone. It's the heart of the gospel, and it's a source of power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Romans 1.16, it says, we are not ashamed. We're not ashamed, so we're going to do it with passion and with power. We're not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. A great church is characterized by great unity and great power, and number three, great grace. Great grace that leads to great generosity. Great grace that leads to great generosity. Great grace was upon them all. There was not, did you see that part of that, those verses? There was not a needy person among them. Does that blow your mind? 
Not a needy, and we're talking about, I believe, all, all needs. There's not a needy. Now, there may be people with want, but there's not a needy person among them. Uh, grace is God's favor, right? Grace is God's favor. It's God's enrichment. It's God's abundance. Uh, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. Someone uh, utilized that beautiful acrostic for God's grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Something we all need, but none of us deserves, but God. As the apostles continue to preach the gospel of Christ, crucified and raised from the grave, grace was poured out, right? Grace was poured out because they couldn't come to faith apart from that grace. It was poured out on people as they received and as they responded in faith and repentance. And the open-handedness with their possessions, I think that's a natural byproduct of their gratitude for God's grace. This radical giving was necessary. Got to put this in context. It was necessary to meet the, the needs in this particular situation and context. Understand that thousands of people were in this place in, in Jerusalem. They had come and, and they, had, they had, had been transformed and changed. And now here they were without homes and without jobs. They, they needed to be cared for. This is a, a somewhat unique situation. It's not normative. It's not commanded. It's not even necessarily wise to sell all your possessions. Okay, that's not the application that we'll be drawing from this passage. It's family, though. This is family. And great generosity is, is a, a, an expression of great unity in Christ, and it's an overflow that's fueled by gratitude. So giving in, in, in this first instance, prior we saw that kind of generosity, but it was really like, like person to person. Like I see the need, I know you, I give. Now giving becomes somewhat institutionalized, if you will, at this point, and they give to the apostles, marking a, a, a mark of their authority, but they give to the apostles and they bring an offering. And with that offering, the apostles are able to, to, to utilize those resources and meet the needs, the obvious needs in, in this context of a people who had nowhere to go. What were they gonna, where were they gonna go? You know, they were gonna go back to their home church? No, there was no church, this was the church. Back to uh, uh, paganism, Judaism? No, so they stay and they have needs, right? And, and, and so we see that it's family and in family we bear one another's burdens. And that's exactly what we see celebrated in the example of, of Barnabas. This is our, our first introduction to Barnabas. Familiar name, right? Uh, Barnabas, but, and we're going to learn a whole lot more about him uh, through the book of Acts. Um, he's, he's a mature, uh, reliable, uh, very likable leader in the early church. And so he'll pop up again and again. And um, we talk about him as part of that four-square relationships and this kind of partner in ministry. And in verses 36 and 37, it says, Joseph, who, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. He wasn't the only one doing this, but, but he, he's... He's celebrated, he's used as an example here, and with reason, but appointed by God's grace. 
We are each given gifts that are meant to be used to build up the body. We're going to talk about that. In fact, at Foundations 301 tonight, if you haven't signed up, you can. Uh, don't have room for child care, but you can still come. And we're going to break that down a little bit. In Ephesians 4, it talks about the, these gifts as the graces. And, and here, uh, Barnabas is taking those graces that he's been given, and he's using them to build up the body. Great grace leads to great generosity, uh, generous stewards of all that we've been given. And, and Barnabas, in particular, is using the gift of encouragement to encourage the church. He's using resources that he has uh, to care for the poor. He, he wasn't asked to do it. He wasn't commanded to do it. Um, he wasn't required in some way to do it. He did it voluntarily. He did it sacrificially. He did it, I believe, joyfully. Um, man, we could spend uh, clearly time at that point and use this as a bit of a, a stewardship um, point of application. Um, and maybe we just ask ourselves, is this an accurate description? How do we measure up to that example? Um, is our giving selfless and and joyous and sacrificial and voluntary and grateful and, and, and what's our motive we're giving? To build others up or to build up ourselves? To encourage and care for others or to get something back? So many questions to reflect upon here uh, as we look at the example of Barnabas and at the example of others in the early church and not only the good examples but also the bad ones because um, you know he's not just sugarcoating here the church. There is the miraculous, but there's also, as we're going to see here, there's the messy example. Uh, Lou gives us the example of Barnabas in chapter 4, and then he contrasts him with, with two characters, uh, Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. And uh, really, the, there shouldn't be a chapter break here, um, as evident by one clear uh, word, the first word of chapter 5, but. So let's take a look at this. Acts 5, 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, and by the way, their names, Barnabas, son of encouragement, Ananias, gracious, and Sapphira, Sapphira is beautiful. And let's see how they live up to their names. Um, they sold a piece of property, that's exactly what Barnabas did. Um, and he, with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the disciples, at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, and not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in, they found her dead, 
And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. A great church is characterized by great unity and and great power and great grace that leads to great generosity. And it's also characterized by great fear. Twice it says that great fear came upon the entire church. You can see why, okay? This doesn't sound like a church growth strategy right here. Um, uh, But we've moved, we have moved from the miraculous to the messy. The early days of uh, uh, the church's history were bright. They were were, uh, up to this point in the church, they were you know, joyful and upbeat and glorious. In fact, even when persecution broke out, as we saw in chapter four, the church met it head on. It didn't destroy the church. In fact, it seemed to further uh, unite and to bolster the church. They prayed harder. They preached harder. Uh, They were granted more uh, boldness by the Holy Spirit. And, And as a result, more and more and more and more people came to Christ. This was the new age. This was the Uh, The era of the new covenant, it was glorious, and the people um, literally uh, were on fire with the power of the Spirit and the sheer force of the truth of the gospel. But sin, but sin, but sin. And it's really a very sad story. It's really very sad, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, not only what they did, but for sure what happened to them and the impact that it must have had, I don't know, didn't say anything about their family, but the impact on them and, and on the entire church. It's sudden and it's shocking and it's sad. In contrast to the example of, 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 of Barnabas, right? Here's the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. What's their sin? What's their sin? The sin is not in the selling, that's clear. The sin is not in, in the keeping, that's clear. They, they could have kept, they, they were within rights, to, to keep as much as they wanted, to give as much as they wanted. The sin is in the lying. It's in the lying, not, not simply lying to, to, to men, but it, clearly lying to God, right? They committed a secret sin, but no sin is secret before God. God knows. God knows. He always knows. You're not going to hide anything from him, even if you've kept it from others. Now, it doesn't tell us uh, what their motive was, um, but we can speculate a little bit that perhaps they wanted, as they watched Barnabas and others come forward and they watched the accolades, that they wanted to get in on this. They wanted a little bit of this. They wanted spiritual status. They wanted a change maybe of their names. They wanted to be noticed. They wanted to be honored and appreciated for their generosity. Um, I had a short season where I did development work for a couple of nonprofit ministries. And so part of that is, is, is generating contributions, donations to a particular cause. And uh, there'd be time, those were very large and very generous. And so we might, we might make, you ever seen one of those, like, those, those big checks? Um, one of those big checks, and why, why, why did we make those big checks? So they could stand with us behind the big check and, and, and take a picture of them, you know, that we could post on Instagram. And we could celebrate the gift and our cause, but also recognize the, the, the person, right? And so maybe that's what they wanted. Maybe that's what, they, they, they came before the entire you know, assembly, however many were gathered at the time, 
and brought it just like Barnabas did to the apostles' feet. And probably, ah, where's my picture? You're right. And, uh, but they, they wanted to be thought of as great and godly, but they were, they were holding back. They were holding back. And they made a pretense of giving it all. The, the lie was simply the vehicle that, that their greed used to gain whatever, whatever it is they wanted to gain. The sin is the sin of hypocrisy. It's trying to create the impression that, that you're something that you're not. It's when the insides and the outsides, they don't match up. You're doing something you're not. You're giving something that you're not. Hypocrisy. And Peter, through uh, divine inspiration um, of the Holy Spirit, using the gift of spiritual discernment that we see in Peter, called them out. And, And they were judged by God for their hypocrisy. Not judged by Peter, not judged by the assembly, but judged by God for their hypocrisy. Peter... Peter didn't judge them, he just revealed their sin in front of the entire church. The topic of church discipline is uh, another message <laughs> that we could probably dive into here. Um, but wow, great fear. How else would you respond? We're not specifically informed that Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, uh, were true Christians. We're also not specifically informed that they were not. So were they or weren't they? And the answer to that question is yes. It doesn't impact the plain truth of the text. If it did, it would be abundantly clear. And probably the original audience didn't know either. It's part of the reality of hypocrisy. It's, it can be this hidden sin. And uh, maybe they could have dug, but at that time, you know, they, they didn't have, uh, you know, maybe in the early life of the church, we see these gifts kind of coming. Uh, I, I'm not sure, especially as we get a little later and the problems they were having that they had an accountant um, in place. But uh, irregardless, uh, they were a community. They were, they were, Ananias and Sapphira were in the church that day and they were bringing an offering. So maybe they were uh, cultural Christians or carnal Christians or merely professing Christians uh, if they were Christians, we know this for sure, they were, they were young Christians. They all were. They were immature Christians. And regardless of the story, uh, you know, it does have a very sobering message to, uh, for believers about sin and its consequences, right? Believers sin, we sin. Believers can certainly be guilty of lying and of hypocrisy. For sure, we can be influenced by our own selfish interests and and motives. We can be uh, tempted by the world. And we can be harassed by Satan. All true of me. Let's talk briefly about the role of Satan. He's uh, implicated in verse 3 by Peter. Uh, The whole church back in 431 was filled with the Spirit. Um, Monty spent some time on that uh, last week, was filled with the Spirit. But, um, but here, and here, the same word filled is being used of Ananias being filled with Satan. But, but as, as you learned last week, this, this isn't an indwelling. This is uh, 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 an empowering, uh, controlling. Uh, and, and Christians, Christians uh, can't be demon-possessed. They can't, Satan and, and, and Christ can't occupy the same ground, okay? But, but uh, Christians can be demon-harassed. 
influenced by Satan. The Apostle Paul says, don't give the devil a foothold. Resist the devil. Put on the full armor of God. Those are admonitions to Christians. Why? Because we can come under that influence and that harassment. And clearly, if we're not to give him a foothold, he could gain a foothold. If we need to uh, put on the full armor, it's because we are in a battle. Uh, Satan is a, a deceiver. He's the father of all lies, and he wants to lead us astray to destroy us and to destroy his church, to use us to do his dirty work, to infiltrate the church, to create division, to distract and to divide and destroy. Just because uh, I believe in Jesus doesn't mean that Satan can't play me. Satan prompted Adam and Eve to act independently of God, theoretically on their own and in their own interests, but in reality, they were doing his work. The same is here. There, there, there is some uh, type here with Adam and Eve and, and Ananias and Sapphira. History would tell us that to persecute the church uh, externally um, has so often resulted in, in the church becoming purer and more powerful and more effective. And we've seen that in our text. And, and so Satan shifted his focus on the early church. He decided he would go to church. Um, that if you couldn't get him from the outside, he would make it an inside job, right? And that's, that's why we still have to fight for unity and purity. It's a battle. I will, I will tell you from experience and by observation that more churches lose their effectiveness and their influence and their zeal through attacks that come from within their walls than from without. I'm not saying we don't need to be on our guard when it comes to the world around us and what's going on around us, but we need to be on our guard when it comes to the things that Satan can do in us and in us, individually and as a church body. Sad and sobering. And that speaks in part to the wages and the weight of sin. We may think, what's the big deal? I mean, you read this particular story and you're like, seriously? Does the crime fit the punishment? It's, I mean, people certainly outside the church would be thinking, man, God is harsh. I mean, a little white lie, what's the big deal? It's not the first or the only time, though, that God struck people dead at the altar. We see it in... The Old Testament with Nadab and Abihu who messed up, you know, the fire on God's altar. They did it wrong. And Uzzah who, who touched the ark, all struck dead. But you may say, well, that's, that's, that's the old covenant. That's, that's before Christ. But in 1 Corinthians 11, 30 and 32, there was actually true believers that God was judging at the Lord's table. Uh, that is why, it says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Some are dead. And in 1 John 5, 16, uh, there is a sin, it says, that leads to death. So uh, this may fit in, in, in our passage, Ananias Sapphira may fit in this kind of very unique, it's not at all normative, but still very sobering situation. The fact that God does this at the very beginning of the church 
And I think there's something very profound in that. At the very beginning of the church, tells us how important he believed that this church start well. And to start well, uh, purity and unity were essential. It was essential. Not allowing compromise because, because if they compromise now, perhaps all would be lost. And we wouldn't be here today. Now, obviously, God in his sovereignty had, had a plan and a purpose, and, and by his spirit, he bolstered them. And Luke is showing us both the, the, the miraculous manifestation, and, but he's also showing us the messiness that remains among God's people due to sin and remains today. Right off the top, the first time we read about sin again is the first time we, we, we read about church. They're right there together. God wanted to strike fear into the church. The fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the, this reverent awe for the holiness of God. I just wonder if we've lost some of that awe, some of that fear, and we've trivialized. Romans 6.23, we know it, for the wages of sin is, that's what it says. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That leads to the final characteristics of a great church, it's a great God. It's a great God and broken and yet hopeful people. A great God and broken and yet hopeful people. There is no great church apart from a great God. Amen? Amen. It ain't going to happen apart from a great God. Thanks to us <laughs> and people like us. The great God and the gift that only he can give. And that ought to humble us and also give us hope. We deserve death, but in Christ and through Christ, through the work of the cross and, and the power of the resurrection, there is victory over death, the gift of eternal life. Jesus is, is, is kind of like the original Barnabas. He sold everything he had. His prestige in heaven, his very life, and he laid it all down at the cross. He saw our spiritual poverty, our desperate need, and he held nothing back, and he did it for our good, and it was enough. He knows that we can be just as, as deceived and as deceptive as Ananias and Sapphira, and yet he gave it all for us to meet our most pressing need, to encourage us to save us. So don't underestimate God's greatness, God's goodness, God's power and God's holiness. Don't overestimate at the same time your own goodness. Be real with God. Real with God. Real with each other. No, no pretense. No, no mass. No hypocrisy. No hiding. We are all desperately in need, all of us, of God's grace and forgiveness. All of us. The church is not perfect. It wasn't perfect then. It's not perfect now. It's not a place for perfect people. It is a hospital for people who know they are sick and also know what the cure is. One writer put it this way, a hospital is not a nice, clean refrigerator designed to keep a few select souls from spoiling. The church is imperfect because people are imperfect. There's sin in the church because there are sinners in the church. Oliver uh, Cromwell, a great English leader, had hired a painter to paint uh, his portrait. 
And uh, Cromwell actually was, was uh, disfigured um, uh, in his face and uh, uh, you know, a face full of many warts and the, the painter was hired to paint his face and, and he wanted to please Cromwell so you know, he, he, he uh, uh, you know, left all the, the warts and all uh, off of the painting. Um, and when Cromwell saw the painting, it is recorded that he said, take it away and paint me as I am, warts and all, the real me. And the Bible always does that. It's, it's doing it right here. It's painting the church as it really is. God knows what we really are, the miraculous and the messy. It paints its heroes and its anti-heroes and its history, warts and all. There is a, a reality in this and there is transparency in this and I think there's great encouragement in this for us, because warts and all, God took that early church with its sin, its sinners, and, and it transformed the entire world. We need to know that, don't we? The fact that God, from the very beginning, had to work with a bunch of sinful people gives us hope. Sinners are, are in the church. We're all sinners. None of us are perfect. But sin, but God. But sin, but God. God is great and greatly to be praised. So what? This is a time set aside for us to, to ponder, to reflect, to consider our response to what God has shared. And this morning, it's also a time for us to prepare to, to, to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper, to come to the table together as a church body. The whole messy matter of of Ananias and Sapphira is very, very uh, sobering. To realize how deeply God cares for us individually and as a church, that he doesn't want anything to disrupt our relationship with him or with each other. The fact that if he, if he wanted to, as we, as we, I don't know how to say it, but if, if he wanted to, like, he could just take us out. And he wouldn't be unjustified in doing so. So the fact that, that we're here and alive and, and breathing and have purpose is a testimony to his goodness and his grace, but to realize how deeply he cares. So he made a way to reconcile us to himself and to one another. It's all about keeping it real. No need to wear a mask. No need to pretend. Warts and all, we get to come to the table of grace. Come before a great and a holy God. No holding back. To bring our entire selves before him. Back in, uh, I referenced uh, 1 Corinthians 11. Back in that passage, you know, if you know a little bit about the church in Corinth um, and why we know this passage isn't normative, because if it was, uh, the church in Corinth would have just been a morgue. I mean, it was a mess. There, there were divisions and all kinds of sin. And, and after, after Peter shared uh, Jesus' words of invitation to eat the bread and drink the cup in remembrance of Jesus' broken body and shed blood, he asked them to examine themselves. And he goes on and say, if you, if you judge yourself truly, accurately, honestly, then you won't be judged. 
if you are open and honest and real, if, on the, if, if, if the inside of our imperfection matches the words of our confession, then we will be forgiven and we will be freely able to come as followers of Christ and share this meal together. What a gift. As a community of broken and yet hopeful people. So before we come, um, let's examine ourselves. Let's acknowledge our mess, our messiness. Let's confess our sins as we prepare to remember and celebrate the great grace and the great power of Jesus who died for us. Let's pray. God I'm a mess but you oh God are the ones who one who takes messes and turns them into miracles do that through your son Jesus Jesus who died on that cross to forgive us our sins who rose from that grave to give us victory over death itself and so we come humbly and yet with great hope in Jesus as you confess your sins as you name them as you acknowledge them and take responsibility for them as you stand in agreement God, as we do that now, you tell us that you are faithful and just and as as filthy as rags are our sin. You wipe that all away. You make that clean as white as snow. You remove that from us. Your desire to purify us personally and as a church body so that you might use us to do your bidding. You might use us to honor and glorify you. That you might love us and we might be able to love you back. And we might be able to take that love and extend that beyond these walls. God, we thank you for such great love. Help us to take off those masks away with the pretense, stop pretending and just acknowledge who we are before you broken, weak selfish
prideful. But again, hopeful in you, Jesus. Because of what we're able to remember and celebrate today as we come to the table. Thank you for your love and forgiveness for us. Thank you for inviting us to come, not because we must, but because we may, because we stand in constant need of you. Desperate need of you, even now. We pray all these things with thanksgiving in the name that is above every name, in the great name of Jesus. Amen. So you are invited to come. As followers of Christ, if you're a believer of Christ, then you're invited to come. You're not, not too bad, not too good to come and to receive of the body and the blood of Christ.